cruel intentions has a trigger warning for sexual assault. If you want to skip over this one, go straight to Centrinians, which starts around 17 minutes. Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Bossing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson. And I misread one of my notes as Sarah Michelle Geller is playing Doctor Doom, which... <laughs> It's not strictly inaccurate, although it's not specifically accurate to this movie. Also, Marvel, get at me. I am the best at casting. So we're talking about Krill Intentions versus Centrinians. Welcome back to our prep school bracket. <laughs> uh, this is becoming more of a disaster as we continue these episodes, which feels appropriate. But uh, as Jackson mentioned, we are discussing 1999's Cruel Intentions and 2007's St. Trinians. And as with uh, the last episode, there is some huge dissonance between the tone of these two films. Yeah. I went in really excited because I had fond memories of this movie. I think it's because I watched it maybe five or seven years ago with a bunch of friends and we were all just drinking and having a good time or whatever. And a lot of the more icky parts didn't stay lodged in my brain. It was just kind of the more fun, wacky bits. And I, I can definitely see like how that could be the case, especially if you're in a group of friends and like only half paying attention to the film. Right. But watching it with a critical eye is uh, not flattering to the film. Let's go ahead and get into why that is. Mm -hmm. Based on the French novel, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Cruel Intentions follow step-siblings Sebastian and Catherine as they manipulate other high-society teens in their Manhattan social circle. Catherine is attempting to ruin the life of C Cecile, the girlfriend of Catherine's ex, Court Reynolds. To do so, she wants Sebastian to seduce Cecile, but he refuses as he intends to bed Annette Hargrove, the incoming headmaster's daughter and author of an op-ed promoting abstinence as his greatest challenge. The step-siblings agree to a wager to resolve the dispute. Should Sebastian succeed in sleeping with Annette, Catherine offers him the only woman out of his reach, herself. However, if he fails, Catherine takes possession of Sebastian's vintage Jaguar Roadster. The two work toward their intended goals with absolutely no compassion for anyone else. Until Sebastian realizes in wooing Annette, he's actually grown to care for her. However, when he informs Catherine that he slept with Annette, he also refuses his reward causing Catherine to become jealous and threatening to sabotage their relationship and reputations. Sebastian breaks things off to protect Annette, and she's devastated. Sebastian returns to Catherine and seeks to finish the wager, but she reveals that her actions were to manipulate him into destroying the only real relationship Sebastian has ever had. Sebastian tries to talk to Annette and apologize, but she refuses to see him. Meanwhile, Catherine cons another of her lovers to confront Sebastian, and they begin to fight. Annette tries to stop them, but is pushed into traffic. Sebastian pushes her out of the way of an oncoming car, but is mortally wounded in the process. As he dies, the two confess their love for one another. Later, at a memorial service for Sebastian, as Catherine delivers a eulogy, Annette, Cecile, and others wronged by Catherine distribute copies of Sebastian's journal, chronicling all of Catherine's misdeeds, ruining her reputation. Annette then drives the Jaguar into the sunset. This movie just has a lot of, like, gross sexual politics that I think we're meant to understand as being gross, but it doesn't quite do enough to unpack them. It's left to the audience to figure out what the movie wants them to think. I think there are times and places where that's appropriate to have the film think for yourself, but they are so all-consuming here. It feels irresponsible for the film not to have a more concrete stance. It's kind of the Fight Club problem. 
Yeah. The characters who are doing wrong do get their comeuppance. Catherine gets exposed and humiliated and probably goes to jail, I assume, hopefully. Probably just, like, rich people rehab. Oh, so not really much comeuppance, I guess. And Sebastian dies, which he probably deserved. It's that thing where heroes get to live happily ever after, villains get redemption arcs, then die. Sebastian doesn't really even get much of a redemption arc. He has a relationship that makes him think about changing and then dies before he really gets the chance to. Right. I think I'm not necessarily even sad about that because Sebastian's an awful fucking character. Well, I shouldn't say he's an awful fucking character. He's an awful fucking human being. I think one of the biggest questions we had is just, why is this movie like this? Who is this for? And in thinking about it while watching it, this came out in 1999, which is like peak edginess. This is the same year that The Matrix came out. This happens just a few months before Columbine. No one acts like a person, so I don't think... Yeah, like, yeah. these are... I know teenagers. I don't necessarily know high society teenagers, but these don't seem like them. They are all acting like French aristocracy in the 18th century, which is from the novel this is based on, but they are all these young actors playing at high school students. It does have a cohesion to it. Like, the kind of... There's a... It's not like it's badly written exactly as like the like all the characters are consistently weird in the same way i've recently discovered that our good friend mrs caldwell is the one who sent the letter to annette urging her to stay away from me interesting yes it is i now plan to devote all my energies to destroying the douchebag they all feel like they fit into the same universe apart from annette it's hyper real yeah it's very hyper real we likened it to an r-rated disney channel original movie it has that same hyper realness to it mm -hmm. but it's just you know they're they're sex drugs and rock and roll i also likened it to a greek mythology movie sebastian and catherine definitely seem like greek gods playing with mortals Yes. Not any particular Greek gods, just the platonic ideal of Greek gods. I mean, there's even the whole like incest thing going on there. They're not even half-siblings. <laughs> Technically, there's nothing stopping them. <laughs> also, where are their parents? Do we know? Uh, they were on holiday. Ah, okay. Th there was a throwaway line in there. Each of their parents called them earlier to discuss their holiday. and The parental units called while you were out. Lovely. How is your gold-digging whore of a mother enjoying Bali? She suspects that your impotent, alcoholic father is diddling the maid. Good. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of characters who are conveniently on a holiday so that teenagers can be alone in large mansions. I mean, it makes sense. This is over the summer in between school years, so it makes sense for a lot of the parents to be away. And also, with the age the teens are at, they probably don't want to spend that time with their parents, so it also makes sense that they are staying here. There's a somewhat thin veneer of narrative causality to it, but it doesn't bother me. It's just sort of very clear that no one has good adult role models around. I mean, Cecile's parents are around, but they're a parent. Terrible. A parent. Yeah, Mrs. Caldwell. Who is as bad as Catherine and Sebastian, just with less, like, ambition. Also more racist. Ronald, that's crazy. I know. She's so young and he's so black. I assume Catherine and Sebastian are just as racist, but it's just not useful to them right now to act on that racism. Possibly. Don't know. Yeah. Oh, don't give me any of that racist crap. My husband and I gave money to Colin Powell. I guess that puts me in my place. So, there's a line from Catherine that I really like. So Catherine's a deeply horrible person. She has the Cordelia Chase energy that you'd enjoy? Mm, not really. Cordelia Chase was never, like, 
a monster. She was just a brat who, when the ships were down, immediately wound up being like on the side of the angels, as it were. Catherine is closer to Hillary Fay, I'd say. Yeah, she's the, like she's like Hillary Fay minus the like evangelical hangups. Right, and she does turn to God, but God is her crucifix, which uh, has like her cocaine in it. Uh, Honestly, I. I love that bit. I love that bit. It's a great detail. But she has a line towards the middle that I really appreciate where she's talking about why she's like this and she's essentially saying that- amaze me. Eat me, Sebastian. It's all right for guys like you in court to fuck everyone, but when I do it, I get dumped for innocent little twits like Cecile. God forbid I exude confidence and enjoy sex. Do you think I relish the fact that I have to act like Mary Sunshine 24-7 so I can be considered a lady? I'm the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side, and sometimes I want to kill myself. Which doesn't justify the shit she's pulling, but it does explain it, and it makes her feel like a real-ish character to mm-hmm. me. Like, I, I'm i okay with that, and I, I have a tiny bit of empathy for her, even if I, you know, still think she's a bad person. Speaking of Catherine and Sarah Michelle Gellar, there's a very good acting bit where Sebastian's talking about falling for a Ned, and he says... She made me laugh. And Sarah Michelle Gellar has this look like like the world is falling to pieces. Like like this is a catastrophe that she needs to call NATO about. It's a good bit. No one's a real human. <laughs> it winds up feeling cohesive if only because she's going so hard at it. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian is, especially at the beginning of the film, just as bad. Definitely got a lot of pickup artist subculture vibes from him at the beginning and right around the same time that movement was kind of coalescing online starting in like 1994 so i'm pretty sure that some of the writing for this film drew directly from that Mm -hmm. but again even if it was meant to be commenting on the badness of it it's still kind of what our main characters are doing and doing successfully yeah. so it doesn't fully address how shitty pickup artists are. Yeah. Sebastian is literally walking around in a black trench coat and it's just... And sunglasses. Yeah. Like, it is it is so 1999 edgy. Like, this film could not come out any other year. Like, a year earlier and people would not have been ready for it and a year later and people wouldn't have been over it. This movie would not have been able to catch on in a post-9-11 world. No. Honestly, I'm not even sure it could have caught on in a post-Columbine world. Yeah. It also can't catch on in a post-Facebook world. Oh, (laughs) yeah. This is awful. So there's this... It's not awful, but, but bad. No, it's it's legitimately awful. It, like, anyone today is imme- who is familiar with Facebook is immediately pulled out of this movie now. So there is uh, this background music during one of the, like, more high emotional tension points of the film where Sebastian and Annette are kind of in, like, distinctly in the will-they-won't-they portion of their relationship and some of the notes sound exactly like the facebook notification ding to the point where we kept checking to make sure it wasn't playing on another tab yeah like is it the computer we're watching it on is it my phone is it my laptop that i'm taking notes no facebook's not open on any of them it does it like a dozen times the music is not strictly bad like i think it's fine enough music for that scene yeah it, it creates a sonic landscape that fits the tone of the emotion of the characters and all it does it is just aged very badly in that one really specific way yes i will say most of the soundtrack for this film slaps it oh, is yeah. full of great 90s alternative 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like I was digging it from the first song that overplays the opening credits. It's a very cool soundtrack movie. Like I think, it's, I think it's part of the trouble. Like the soundtrack is really cool, and it makes these characters seem really cool, even though they're doing uncool things. Yeah. Although there is one questionable choice for the soundtrack, and it's not so much like it's weird putting it in. It's weird what they put the song over. So at the very end of the movie, as the journals are being distributed and Catherine's social life is coming down around her, everything goes to slow motion and bittersweet symphony starts playing. And we just see all of these people like looking at Catherine with these disappointed looks in their face, just like shaking their heads and tut-tutting. And it's just (laughs) so odd. I think the Bittersweet Symphony works better as Annette is like driving off into the sunset in the Jaguar. That all works, but the end of Catherine's career as Master Manipulator, it doesn't work. No. No. It does make it all seem very silly, and I think this movie is better understood as a sort of pastiche we're not meant to take very seriously than as like... Uh, the tragedy of Sebastian Valmont or whatever. Yeah, this film is billed as a drama, but it, I honestly think nowadays it works much better as a comedy. <laughs> a black comedy, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are definitely parts of it that I don't want to make light of. I don't want to say that like it's that these things are funny or whatever, but the parts that are not gross and icky can be funny in the like nothing here is real sense. Yeah, like it's just complete ridiculousness no one acts like this everyone takes everything way too seriously and the things that they should take seriously they don't i think the movie is successfully achieving what it was trying to do i'm just not sure why it felt compelled to do that thing we say this a lot on this podcast but it's so of its time it's kind of why i really enjoy the way we set up these brackets is because we're looking at a lot of stuff that has fallen out of cultural memory and i'm sure many people haven't thought about in years and we're just kind of looking back and like okay how does this read now yeah i think it's important to do that with our media history Mm -hmm. there is one scene that i kind of enjoyed just from a visual standpoint this is fairly early on sebastian is making his early forays into seducing annette and they're in, in a pool and he's literally circling her like a shark I did not catch that, but yeah. that makes so much sense. It was very blatantly predatory with the way she was kind of just kept turning around. It, I think it was a good way to convey his approach in a visual standpoint, even as he's being all suave. Mm-hmm. That was a good way to show us he's a predator, he's dangerous. Mm-hmm. I liked that. Mm-hmm. I mean, This is also immediately before Annette walks in after changing into her bathing suit and he is buck at Snake getting out of the sauna and, yeah, is presenting himself to her. Mm-hmm. Don't do that either, y'all. Don't, don't do this. No, like, there's so much in this movie that is like, don't do this guide for dating and relationships. Ask yourself, what would the Valmonts do and do the exact opposite of that thing? Well, only one of them is Valmont. Catherine it has a different last name oh. that I cannot pronounce, which is why I didn't include it in my summary. <laughs> we also haven't even talked about, like, the queer stuff in this movie. Yeah, so we have a character who is distinctly out of the closet, played by Joshua Jackson. You may know him as Charlie Conway from the Mighty Ducks series, or he was also on Fringe. He was on Fringe, wasn't he? Uh, Dawson's Creek as well. That's for those of you who have absolutely no interest in pirates. I'm assuming that our listeners skew more towards Fringe and Mighty Ducks than Dawson's Creek. I could be wrong. And he's the, like... Just as awful friend of Sebastian who helps with gay crimes, I guess. I do, I guess, 
appreciate that his friend who he pays to help him with the shoving someone out of the closet scheme is just as willing to participate. So, yay, everybody gets to be an asshole. (laughs) Intersectional assholery. But also, uh, there's a bit where, as part of her... Her sexual training. Just call it what it is. As part of her nonsense web of (laughs) sex and debauchery, Catherine is teaching how to do sex things. And one of them is like, I'll let us make out with tongues. The camera leans in close and we just linger on this shot. It is a very male gazy girl on girl kiss, which is exactly what I expect from this movie from 1999. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all, but I feel like that was responsible for at least 40% of the ticket sales. Mm -hmm. It is very telling how the film treats that lesbian kiss compared to the male-male sex scene that we just miss out on. We don't even get a gay kiss from that scene because that wouldn't be scintillating for the the men in the audience, presumably. (laughs) Did this end up passing your uh, gay kiss rule? Uh, Yeah, so technically, technically, because of how much goes on between Catherine and Cecile, it has four gay kisses and only three uses of the F slur. So technically, it passes. And it still needs to see me as your class. (laughs) Speaking of not passing well, let's talk about Centrinians. Yes, let's. I I am very done talking about Cruel Intentions. So I'm actually going to have you pause here. I really like this movie and I think it is best enjoyed knowing as little as possible so my rough summary is what if Wednesday Adams was diffused across an entire girls boarding school and that was your movie that's your pitch if you want to pause this go watch it and then come back you may do so if you're still here if you've already watched it and come back uh, this is St. Trinigans which was released in 2007 because her dad cannot afford Cheltenham Ladies College Uptight Annabelle Fritton is shipped off to St. Trinian's, a anarchist commune for teenage girls masquerading as a boarding school, run by her aunts. She doesn't fit in because she's not a terror, but her anger at her dad leads to her visiting a capital display of athletics upon her phone, witnessed by a PE teacher who drafts her to field hockey. On the field, she defeats her rival from Cheltenham, uh, Verity Thwaites, while uh, Jeffrey Thwaites, her dad slash education minister, sees the horrors of the school, vouching to crack down on them despite the wiles of his ex, Miss Fritton. On top of that, a foreclosure notice informs them they need 500,000 pounds or they're going to have to close the school. Several scenes happen that help Annabelle transition from lawful good to chaotic neutral and become one of the other girls. The girls band together, the various cliques uh, uniting in a common cause, stealing the girl with a pearl earring from the local gallery. In order to get in, the posh toddies con their way into the finals of a school quiz show being filmed there. Because of the tropes of the genre, the opposing team is Cheltham, meaning Annabelle gets to have her showdown with Verity as part of the heist. After winning the quiz show and finding the stolen painting, the reputation of St. Trinian's is good as gold, Minister Thwaites is made to look a fool, and they all live happily ever after. An important thing to know for this film that I didn't before we started watching it is in 2003 we got a film called Girl with a Pearl Earring, which is about the events surrounding the painting of that painting, starring Scarlett Johansson and Colin Firth. This is important. In the film, Colin Firth plays Minister Thwaites, and they reference that because at one point they're looking at the painting of the girl with the pearl earrings and say, Wow, you can so see why Colin Firth wanted to shag her. This film does not give a fuck. In fact, when they initially talk about stealing that painting, the posh toddies exclaim, You want to steal Scarlett Johansson? You are so blonde, Chelsea. It's so good. This film is definitely of a sign. There's a lot of references that are dated. They have not aged poorly. They just said it in a very particular time period when the girl with a pearl earring was a thing you'd recognize as opposed to, you know. I haven't seen girl with a pearl earring. I assume the eponymous characters are but wooden. But anyway, this cast is amazing. We have Colin Firth. We have Lena Headey. 
we have uh, Jody Whitaker. Stephen Fry runs the quiz show. Yeah, and he's playing himself. Lucy Punch, who at this point you probably just recognize as a professional evil stepsister. But here she is playing Verity Thwaites. Uh, she's also 30 when this came out. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the other actresses are much closer to school age than she is. And they're all doing a pretty good job. Uh, for those of you who have watched Wild Child, which we talked about last week, the actress who plays Drippy is also here playing Cilia. Mm, yeah. Not a very prominent character, so there's no proof that they're not the same character. The movie has a kind of bonkers tone. I mentioned uh, Wednesday Adams. Like, the whole school is just full of violence and depravity. When Annabelle first walks in, there's just a place for lost and found weapons. There's a line towards the beginning of the film where the headmistress is talking about how pupils and teachers uh, get along in blissful harmony, and then it just cuts to one of the <laughs> students being dragged by a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> the editing is great in this. Oh, yeah. They have nailed editing for comedic effect. It is superb here. There's a good bit when Lena Headey, playing a sweet, kind English teacher... Like the exact opposite of Cersei Lannister. <laughs> ...shows up for her job interview and is harangued by a lot of the, like first years who are feral goblins in school uniforms. If you've ever seen Recess, imagine the kindergartners, but with access to like a chemistry set and explosives. But she makes it to the building and they call that good enough as a job interview so she gets the job. <laughs> yeah, the teachers all do not give a fuck. <laughs> What's wild to me is that the school technically works. We see a graduate who comes back to help coach the posh toddies on how to do well on TV, and she's a highly successful PR guru. Our last head girl now turned PR guru. Sidebar, as someone who works in marketing, please stop using guru as a thing if you're not referring to the actual religious position. <laughs> anyway, clearly this school teaches the skills you need just in a very unconventional way. <laughs> a thing that struck me during the field hockey match though was that the Chelton Ladies College girls are just as mean and cruel and are allowed to get away with just as much as the people from St. Trinians are. They're just polite and nice about it. And I understand that this is a film that is talking about how high schoolers can be very cruel, but heightening it to be the kind of thing we understand as cruelty as opposed to the way bullying actually looks, which is a very nuanced... I mean, you could also probably read some class dynamics into that, where it's like both of these schools are full of cruel, terrible schoolgirls. And to be fair, part of it is just the age. Children are terrible in those ages. Mm -hmm. But one is much more socially acceptable than the other because it is covered in the, uh, the social veneer of high society. Yeah, pretty much. And I will say that while we're describing them as horrible, they're horrible to outsiders, but to each other they have a sense of you're part of us, therefore we will defend you to the hilt, which I really appreciate. Like, it is, this is definitely a found family movie, and even though the family is dysfunctional and murderous, it still is very heartwarming when Annabelle gets her gauntlet of makeovers from all the squads until she finally finds one that fits her. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really nice. Yeah. Like, I appreciate how much they all care about each other. Yeah, I also really appreciate the way she loses faith in her father because her father's completely willing to, like, sell her and her school down the river to make a quick buck. Whereas her aunt desperately cares about her and is willing to defend her to the hilt. Yeah. Speaking of her aunt. <laughs> and her father. And <laughs> they're played by the same actor. Mm -hmm. 
which is a tradition for these films, because this is actually a reboot. There are five films previously regarding St. Turnians. And a sequel that is uh, A Hunt for Lost Gold. Mm -hmm. And in the original film, it was established that they have a male actor play the headmistress, and they have done the same thing here with Rupert Everett playing Camilla Fritton, the headmistress, as well as her brother. No one ever brings up whether Camilla Fritton is meant to be a trans woman or just a man in full-time drag, or if it's that thing where in England there's kind of a fuzzy line between the two, or if the character is meant to be a woman who's have a male actor playing her. Who knows? Yeah. There's weird history of men dressing as women in England for both comedy and for theatricality, and I don't have time to unpack that here. <laughs> yeah, I am okay with it. I, like, in this movie, I don't have enough cultural knowledge to understand where that all falls in terms of the big trans discourse. I think because the actors doing such a good job and having such a good time, it winds up working out here. Especially yeah. because they don't try to make a commentary about being trans or anything. Yeah, so. also, like, it's not even about being ugly because Colin Firth is in this, and you know Colin Firth always has to be the romantic lead in whatever he's lit, and that is true here because there is romantic tension between Colin Firth's character and the headmistress. And it's played completely straight. <laughs> yeah. No one is ever like, oh, what a dangerous romance, the forbidden fruit or whatever. She's just like a lady. Yeah, they, they even have a history. They went to university together and had a fling. Yeah. Speaking of Colin Firth, at one point, Camilla's dog was humping his leg and she says, I think this is all he likes him. <laughs> Again, another reference to a role, another role that Colin Firth has played as he was Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Colin Firth later kills that dog. <laughs> Yeah, in a very Rube Goldbergian series of uh, mishaps. Which leads to this kind of like, now it's serious thing where before they were all trying some harebrained schemes to raise enough money to save the school. Now they're all locked in. They're going to save the school and ruin Mr. Thwaites. Thwaites? Colin Firth. They're going to ruin Colin Firth out of vengeance. I was all in. Oh yeah. I don't have a lot of notes on things that happened. Most of my notes are just like, Funny lines, like... A bossa never makes mistakes about money, unless it's for tax purposes. There's a very good bit where they're practicing with their explosives and they reference the Italian job. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. I'm a sucker for heist movies, and while this isn't the best heist I've ever seen, I've like I've seen things done better. This is really just here to have a good time. Like, they do the iconic laser crawl thing, but as a dance montage. Not quite as good as the dance montage for... A similar sequence in Ocean's 12, though. I need to rewatch Ocean's 12, apparently. <laughs> Quick sidebar. This might get cut for time. We'll see. There's a podcast that a friend turned me on to called Plumbing the Death Star, and a recent episode was, what skill would you bring to the Ocean's team that they don't already have? You should go look that up. It's hilarious. <laughs> Far better than it has any right to be. We're celebrating the film in a lot of ways. There is some uncomfortable stuff towards the end where it's unclear. Miss Fritten slips Colin Firth a drug and it's unclear exactly what happens with that. I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that nothing untoward happens while he was drugged, even though some of the dialogue makes it a little unclear, because I like this movie and I like these characters and I want to assume the best of them. There is also another scene towards the beginning of the film with the hazing of Annabelle. She gets covered in slime right before she's about to go to sleep for the first time there, and so she has to go shower off, and as she's showering they steal her clothes set up webcams, and then broadcast her running around naked and wet to get back 
her clothes. It's not great. It's not great. But the thing is, we watched this film maybe an hour or so after we finished Cruel Intentions, and nothing that's bad here holds a candle to all of the awful, ridiculous bullshit that's in Cruel Intentions. And Centurions, I think we're pretty clear, this is not okay. It bothers me less because of how heightened the film is, because we know that they're all being terrible. Yeah. It's the same thing with a lot of the stuff in the Adams family. Like, if the stuff that happened in the Adams family were played straight, it would not be kosher. But because it's the Adams family, it's played for comedy, and we're dealing with really wacky cartoon physics, it doesn't read the same way. I don't begrudge anyone for not being into this movie because of either of those scenes. We are in the specific position where we are comparing these two films against each other, and they are night and day. <laughs> yeah. I call it the Gerald. The Gerald. After my first husband. Cheap and bitter and completely alcoholic. The songs are okay, but they don't always fit super well. And they're kind of just tacked on and not edited, like, impressively or anything. Yeah, there's a lot of bubblegum pop or pop punk going on to, like, to fit the rebellious teen girl aesthetic. I think it works, but it's nothing noteworthy. Part of it is, is they're also all, like, songs by acts from the United Kingdom, and we're less familiar with them over here. At the end, there's just, I guess, a, a theme song for St. Trinigan's or whatever. In the somewhat minor threatening key, that makes the film seem less like a movie and more like a threat. Like, I imagine that every once in a while someone tries to shut some trainings down for a variety of valid reasons, and they just slip them this movie, and then they go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, that scene is specifically uh, the members of Girls Aloud performing that St. Trinian's theme song. This movie definitely needed to end on like a big dance party number that fades into the end credits. That's exactly the energy we wanted. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm glad there wasn't like a big kiss or some bullshit. It's just like everybody being happy. Yeah, there's actually like no romance subplot for any of the girls. Really, the only male members of the cast are Annabelle's dad, the bursar, and the education minister, and Stephen Fry. And um, Russell Brand. Oh, yes, Ru Russell Brand, who is. Um, the spiv. He, he he's a school spiv. He he uh, decides to like just teach a class on crime for them. <laughs> he does have something of a love interest in Kelly Jones, who is the head girl of the school. Mm -hmm. She is, I guess, the the ghost of Liza Minnelli or something. That's kind of the vibe she gives off. <laughs> and both of them seem way older than high schoolers, but I. I'm not good at judging ages, so I couldn't tell how hashtag not great him pursuing a high schooler was. Gemma Arterton, who's playing Kelly, is only like 20, somewhere between 20 and 22 when this film came out. So she's not playing too much older, but the costuming and the way she holds herself, I think, just push her age up quite a bit. Whereas Russell Brand was around uh, 30, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's unclear as to whether Flash is awkward around Kelly because he's into her or because he's scared of her. <laughs> Or both. <laughs> I think it's probably time to move into our alignment chart. Well, I mean, is it? St. Trinian's kind of did this for us. <laughs> it really did. The clicks at St. Trinian's are the posh toddies, the chavs, the emos. We're not goths, we're emos. And the first years. Oh, and the geeks. And the geeks. It seems 
too easy to just chalk the leaders of each of those into the chart, but it's also the most accurate. Yeah. And we don't really have a lot of competitors from Cruel Intentions for most of these, except Prep and Goth. No one's really a nerd or a jock in this. Um, in Cruel Intentions, we have Greg, the one that uh, Sebastian blackmails. That's true. He he is quite a jock. I think he's jockier than anyone who is in St. Trinian's. That's true. Congrats, Greg. You get to win something for once. <laughs> we could pull Sebastian for Goth from Cruel Intentions, but Andrea from... St. Trinian's, the like leader of the emos, way, way more so. For sure. I also kind of want to give our kind of focus character from the Postatis, whose name I forget. Um, um, that would be Chelsea. I kind of want to give Chelsea, the kind of focal character from the Postatis, the, the Nerdwin, because she has all this knowledge and ability to gain knowledge that lets her win at the quiz bowl, even though the mugs get cut off. And I think that Celebrating that is great. Especially since Polly, the only other one who is kind of in the running for that, is kind of a relatively minor character compared to a lot of the other click leaders. And Polly seems almost too obvious of a choice. Mm -hmm. Who is most prep? I think this is a pretty obvious one. We gotta go with Catherine. Oh, okay, fair enough. I was gonna go with Verity Thwaites, but okay. <laughs> I think Catherine and Verity are the same person. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I think it. the only difference is the ratings of the films that they're in. True. That's very true. What is the heart of prep? Money, privilege, avoiding consequences. Sure. Lording it over other people. And I will say that Verity, while very preppy, does also have some jock points. Mm -hmm. Whereas Catherine does not. Catherine is full prep. She has some goth aspect, but... Yeah, she has a lot of some of the nihilism that Sebastian shows more visually. But yeah, like there's definitely a... There's a dark streak to her. I think Catherine also does the best job of just showing a lot... Like the dark side of preppiness. Mm -hmm. She's also the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side. So I think, sorry, my bad. How could I cut all of this when you're editing this? Catherine for most prep. Yeah. Cool. I don't think we have any bits for uh, a study in red string. I don't think so. Um, I didn't. I didn't notice any uh, Sherlock Holmes connections. No, I'm sure there's something in the British characters because I mean, someone's played Sherlock Holmes, but. Uh, St. Trinity's is moving on, so we'll get to pursue that further, presumably. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, spoilers. St. Trinity's wins this round. Yeah, like, no contest. We decided it, like, immediately after watching the film. We decided it about ten minutes into the film, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not devoid of problems, it's not devoid of problematics, but it is so much more fun than Cruel Intentions. It is so much more delightful in its bonkersness. And I won't say that you can't be in the right mood to enjoy Cruel Intentions. Right. But you have to go in knowing what you're getting into and in, like, the right frame of mind and reading it as just the this ridiculous over-the-topness and kind of not letting the really bad parts get in the way. And that's not going to be easy or possible for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So Cruel Intentions and Intrigues both have sequels. I am morbidly curious about Cruel Intentions sequel. I am rapidly hungry for St. Trinian's sequel. Yeah. The morbid curiosity I have for the Cruel Intentions sequel is mostly because they have it's a prequel and they have Amy Adams playing Catherine. And I'm like, how does that work? She's adorable. <laughs> I like the idea of casting increasingly unfit people to play Catherine. So Amy Adams as Catherine. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o as Catherine. Uh, Christopher Walken as Catherine. <laughs> oh, one of the ones we listed was uh, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Panabaker as Catherine. Exactly. 
Yeah. That does it for this week's episode. Yeah. What's coming up next week? Next week, we are doubling up on our Oscar bait. Gods. To be fair, one of them I hear is very good. We have Mona Lisa Smile. Uh, and then we also have Emperor's Club. If you want to hear our thoughts on those or any other films, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and and anywhere you catch your pods. Podcast. Fuck. And your podcasting application of choice. Exactly. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.